show. Today I have Elizabeth Johnson Rice with me. Hi, Miss Rice. How you doing, Kaylee? <laughs> I'm doing so good. How are you? I'm awesome. Glad to be with you. Glad to be with you too. I'm so excited to have you here. <laughs> um, Miss Rice and her brother were part of the Richmond 34. She was also a middle and high school teacher for 40 years. Whoa. <laughs> Just jumping right into it. She was also one of the first black teachers to integrate Petersburg public schools. Plus, she led the commemoration for the 40th anniversary for the Richmond 34. Adding on to that, she is the founder of BPOS, which we were, we were going to get to later. So, Ms. Rice, are you ready to get questions? I'm ready when you are. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm really happy to I'm really, really happy to be here for, I think, one of Kaylee's first podcasts, or maybe her first, so I deem it an honor that she, she asked me to, to do this. this. This is my first time being on a podcast, so I'm excited also. Uh, uh, I, I was uh, privileged to meet her, meet Kaylee through a Google Google meet meeting uh, held by the Social Studies department at uh, Swift Creek Middle School. So I was really happy to be on that and uh, I think Kelly was on there too and from that she wanted me to be her guest today. So hopefully I can um, share some things with you that you might like and understand. Uh, uh, Kelly talked about me being in the movement I was a civil rights activist from the 60s. I started in, um, I was a student at Virginia Union University in uh, 1960. And I remember the day very well. The sit-ins, which you may know about, it started all over the nation about that time in the South. And Virginia Union University was one of those schools that had heard about it. Now, the sit-in started in Greensboro, North Carolina, by a group of four young men, and they became known as the Greensboro Four. Well, of course, we heard about the Greensboro Four, and it started, the sparks of it started happening in different parts of the South. So, I, we heard about it, and at Virginia Union, it was really known for teaching and, and grooming ministers, Baptist ministers. It really was a Baptist college. And um, Martin Luther King and many of the great ministers that that are that you know performed were taught there and they came there just to meet on a regular basis. Even the uh, president of the college was a minister and, and so many of them came. And civil rights was always kind of being talked about. And so after Martin Luther King had learned about passive nonviolence, uh, you know, through with Mahatma Gandhi from India, and taught us about nonviolence and how to act, we took those same lessons and we were ready when the sit-ins came to me. Callie, you, you jump in anytime you want to okay. and ask me any questions. Okay, well. So, uh, you go ahead. 
I got myself a list of questions here. Um, Alrighty, I'll, I'll probably do better that way, and you can control the, the time and everything. Okay. So, first question. Um, what, do you know, what, if you know, and what, and do, well, do you know, and why were you named Elizabeth Johnson Rice? Okay, well, that ain't listen, but that's very interesting because I am the third Elizabeth in my family. My, my grandmother was Elizabeth Bell Jones. She was an orphan, and she was um, very active. She was was a little bit, I think from what I understand, I haven't checked all my ancestry completely, yeah. but she was Cherokee from what I understand, and she was taken from her family and raised by a white family in Ohio. And she, um, from what I can understand, we never really talked about it. You know, I just little bits and pieces. Yeah. But they, they realized that uh, she was very bright. And they sent her to Oberlin University. And so she, my grandmother had a college degree, which is very rare back then. Wow. And while she was at Oberlin, she met my grandfather, who she married, and he was John Herbert Jones Sr. And they married, and they had uh, seven children. <laughs> my grandfather was uh, became one of the first black Episcopal priests in the United States. So he, 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 he was kind of an activist back then himself. And then between the two of them, uh, they came to Washington, D.C. at some point with my mother, who was also named Elizabeth. So she's Elizabeth Johnson, uh, Elizabeth uh, Jones Johnson. And, of course, I became Elizabeth Johnson Rice. So now I'm waiting for someone to have a little girl. And, by the way, my granddaughter is going to be having a little um, girl in, in September, close to October. So oh. I might get an Elizabeth, I'm not sure. <laughs> anyhow, we'll see. But anyhow, back then, um, my grandparents were very active, and um, Roosevelt was, of course, in office. And my grandmother knew um, Eleanor Roosevelt. And yeah. she kind of went, she, she was invited to the White House back then, and from what I can understand, had tea with uh, Miss Roosevelt on more than one occasion. And she was uh, given a grant, started her own foundation in 1945 called the Tomorrow's World Foundation. And uh, she was given a grant. She started a camp there for uh, underprivileged kids. And they were mainly, mainly black kids who didn't have a chance to go to a camp and she got a property there in Chesapeake. So anyhow, she did some things and met some very important people and that's part of my history. So uh, that's where the that's where the name Elizabeth came from. So hopefully I can pass it on to someone else. We'll see. <laughs> Fingers crossed. That's such an amazing... What would you say? Fingers crossed. <laughs> How about that? How about that? They are considering it. I said, are you thinking about Elizabeth? They said, we did think about it, but, you know, I, I left it alone after that. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, that's 
amazing story about your grandmother. I, I thought I had a big family. I have three siblings, but, I mean, seven kids. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, oh, but I forgot to tell you, the unique thing about my grandfather was he named all of his boys John. First name, John. He, he was John Herbert Sr. He named the first son John Herbert Jr. Then there was a John Davis Jones. Then there was a John, uh, let's see, uh, Berkeley Jones. Oh, I can't think of all, but oh, John Luther Jones. <laughs> so all his boys had the John in front of them. And then my mother was, she was a Mary and didn't like the Mary and dropped it. So she, you know, kept, she went and became just Elizabeth after her her mother. So that was interesting. He was in the book of records, Guinness Book of Records, but I couldn't go back that far to find it. So George Foreman is the one that has been given credit for naming all his boys George, but my grandfather did it back in the day. <laughs> That's... Yeah. <laughs> that sounds confusing. Yeah. Okay, well, still focusing on your childhood, what were some of your earliest memories? Earliest memories were I was um, born in Washington, D.C., and my father was uh, a dental, well, he was, he, he cut hair on Florida Avenue, if you know anything about Washington, D.C., and he cut hair to pay his way through dental school. He, he was uh, he was a Virginian. He was a country boy born in Tappahanna. And uh, his parents, somehow he got to, he, he played football and was very, he did a real good job and got, he went to, I think, St. Paul's, which is a college that has gone under because of no funds and what have you. Yeah. That's in Lawrenceville, Virginia. But at any rate, um, he... Finished Howard University, and um, when he, my mother and my mother was working at the Pentagon as a, a secretary, and they mm -hmm. decided that, uh, and once he got his degree, they uh, would go to Lawrenceville, Virginia, and so I don't know if you ever heard of Lawrenceville, but it's a little town here in Virginia, not far from yeah. Petersburg and what have you, mm -hmm. and he became the first dentist in the town so there's another he made he made that difference what? there were there'd never been any dentists in that town and he was the first dentist but it was a very segregated town but it didn't matter to people when they had a toothache they needed to find a dentist yeah so my father my father had a very diversified practice with uh, many white white uh, customers and clients and also you know anybody who had a who had a uh, toothache, mm -hmm. and uh, he did a lot of lot of wonderful things. He worked with the NAACP trying to, to cut you know help people of color get their rights, and there were a lot of prejudicial things going on there. You uh, only there the white businesses were all on one street, and those who tried to have a business in the black community were on another street. And so my father started his dental practice right there on that street, but it was right on the campus of St. Paul's, which was a college. 
and my mother became a professor there of uh, of business at St. Paul's. Wow. So both my parents were, you know, they were they were doing what they had to do, and uh, it was. Uh, I remember this. You couldn't. You could go into the stores, but you know they they would not wait on you when they saw you, and that's one of the things I remember. Why you know why am I not being waited on? Yeah. So they would talk and have a good old time and ignore me standing there. So it was that was you know that was part of that segregated style. And yeah. when they got ready, they would say, uh, "Did you want something?" <laughs> well, I was in the store because I wanted something. So anyhow, that might have gotten, you know, I might have remembered that. And so uh, I, I remember when we, my father bought, uh, built a house there when he came because there weren't any houses that he liked in that in that community. And all of the big, big houses were there on the street where the white people lived. Um, and they, of course, you couldn't get a house there. Yeah. So he built a nice little brick home and we would walk from school. Um, I walked from home to school, which was on my, thank goodness my school was on the campus, on the, on the college campus. So I got a great, I got a great education with many teachers. It was a great surroundings there, Mm -hmm. but I think I realized walking, walking to school, I would see the school bus that the the white kids were on and they would yell the N word from the bus, bus and I remember back then, I was going to the third grade because I went to the first and second grade in Washington, D.C., but I was in the third grade when I moved to Lawrenceville. So those were early days of of knowing that things are not not the same. If you went into a movie, you Mm -hmm. had to go to the upper level. You couldn't go to the downstairs. And so there was, you know, discrimination right there. Yeah. And so all these things are in the back of my head, not realizing that, you know, one day I would be standing up for, for injustice. So yeah. those, that, was early, that was early childhood. It's great that you said such an amazing family to help you get through that. Yeah, yeah, they were very supportive and active themselves and well-respected. So I had two generations, my grandparents were well-respected on my mother's side. Now, I didn't know my my grandparents on my father's side. He didn't talk much ever about it. I knew, I knew my aunts. I knew his sisters. Yeah. But I never, I never met his mother. Never mm-hmm. heard him speak about his mother. And so those are some things that, you know, I often think about and wonder what in the world, you know, what could have happened. That and why did that happen, you know? Yeah. So at least I had some support on one side. Mm-hmm. So um, now to the huge part, everyone who is listening, which is basically my family and friends, um, including me, have been waiting for. Can you tell talk to us about the Richmond Thirty Four and what it was like being a part of that? Okay. Well, my father did so well in Lawrenceville, and he was his he. He was very, very gifted dentist, and um, he he became known as the painless dentist because while you were waiting for your tooth to get pulled or whatever it happened, it was already out. <laughs> Nobody knew. He would talk you talk to you so much that 
you didn't realize your mind was on the conversation. And while you were doing that, he took the tooth out. So he got that reputation. And then we moved to Richmond because uh, people wanted him to come there. And he, so he had a job. He had two offices, one in Lawrenceville and one in Richmond. And that's when wow. we moved from uh, Lawrenceville to Richmond. And so that's when uh, we, we moved to a home in Northside, Griffin Avenue, not far from the Virginia State, I mean, Virginia Union campus. And so that was the day. We, 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 we were there and I uh, had a wonderful time there, great neighbors, and uh, going to school. It was a wonderful school with very, very powerful people that went there. All the mm-hmm. students that went there came from great families and they demanded the best of their of their students you yeah. know so while they were away from home they had to act a certain way mm-hmm. so that day i remember it very well february 22nd 1960 my brother ford and i were uh on our way to school after we had breakfast at the at the breakfast table with our parents and they had told yeah. us look i know things are going on but we don't want you to get involved because we don't want you to get hurt yeah. In case they start doing doing the uh, sit-ins here in Richmond, yeah. and I, he's, my father said, "I know it's just a matter of time." So we went, we left there that morning, and uh, we're on our way to the, the campus. So I'm gonna let you kind of lead me on that, Kaylee, in terms of what you want me to say, because I could talk straight on through, but I don't want to do that. Ask me whatever questions. Oh, okay. Um, so. While you were going to school, this was the day that um, the sit-ins ha- started, right? Yeah, they had gone to the to the they'd gone downtown Richmond on Broad Street earlier that that week and uh, stopped the stopped the they'd gone into the lunch counter a few of them, few of the young men and no one uh, they said we're not going to serve you and they shut down the, the lunchroom counter and closed the store. So, you know, that was okay, but nobody really knew about it. Nobody said anything. So they decided, I think uh, some of the leaders decided we've got to go to a bigger store and make a bigger impact. So the whole thing, they wanted to test the law. And uh, I wasn't thinking about testing the law. I just was seeing what I saw on television and knew what was going on going on yeah and but i do know martin luther king had come to the campus and we were ready with a march if we had to do one so you met martin luther king yeah as a matter of fact i used to introduce him when he came to the campus i was very active in civil rights on the campus i was a a member of the student christian nonviolent committee through the yeah martin luther king's organization and um uh, there were chapters throughout the South and also became involved. I didn't realize I was involved in so much until later after I left there. They said, you know, you were involved in this and that. I was involved in SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee with Stokely Carmichael. I said, oh, my, oh my God. God. I said, I learned. I, I never met him. I don't remember meeting him, but he came on the campus and I joined the organization just trying to get the, the voting rights and that type of thing. They were always talking about getting the rights. So that happened there. 
So, what made you decide to go, like, go up against what your father had told you and become a part of the sit-in? Okay, um, it, when we got on the campus that day, we saw the picket signs. And that let me know, oh my goodness, this is the day that they are really going to go and the march is going to start. And nobody was going to class. Everybody was out there quietly talking. And so, and nobody was, none of the teachers were saying, come on, kids, you need to be in class. Nobody yeah. was saying anything. No one was telling us to come to class. I said, this is strange. So we got there, and um, the the leaders of, of the sit-ins in Richmond, uh, Frank Pinkston and Charles Sherrod, they um, said, we're going to go, we're going to, we're going to march and picket Tallheimers today. Now, you all have all been taught about nonviolence, and we want this to be a peaceful march. If you can't handle it, then you need to not march. And so we said, if you all, those of you that are serious about this, get in line, and we're going to start a march. And so over 200 kids got in line quietly. And, you know, this respected what Fred, uh, Frank Pinkston was saying and Charles was saying. And my brother was not directly with, not beside me or behind me or yeah. in front of me. He was somewhere. He went his way with his friends. And I was there. So we started the march and uh, nobody was stopping us. And we just marched from Lombardi all the way to a six and broad where Tallheimer's department mm. store was. And Tallheimer's was a very, very uh, beautiful store. And it was like the Mecca of shopping there in the South. Yeah. People from all over the South came to Tallheimer's. And so there we were, picketing in front of the store, you know, everybody going around. Names, we were being called names, and nobody threw anything at us. But we were being called names, and people were honking their horns, and uh, so we were we were st- we were all dressed immaculate. Yeah, we looked like we were going to church, but that wasn't just for the movement. We we dressed that way every day. Yeah, and so uh, we were definitely respectful of our parents and uh, and the crowd. So, so we- you want to keep. So how does 200 kids turn into 34? Like, how was how, how it? Okay, very good question. Very good question. How, how come 200 students aren't being recognized? Yeah. Well, I tried to recognize them as much as, I, as much as I can because they were there. They just weren't arrested. So yeah. once the, we were picketing around the store, the call was given, we're going in. And I said, oh, my goodness. I knew I was picketing. I knew that that I'd already left the campus and I shouldn't have. And now I'm picketing in front of a store. And and the cameras were there by then, the the, the TV cameras. And some of the police were just monitoring on the street. I said, oh, my goodness. You know, what's going on? What what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) I was thinking. And what will my parents say? 
And so they said, we're going in. And so everybody was picketing. And that group that came closest to the door. Yeah. And I happened to be in that group, and so was my brother. 34 of us were, were went into the went into the store. I don't know who decided 34 or who, who maybe someone said, you know, this is it. No one else can come in. We're already full or something. But anyhow, it ended up being 34 students. Some went to the um, Rose Room, I think that was called, on the top level, the restaurant, which was very nice dining. And, and most of us ended up on the first floor around the lunchroom counter. And so we were there, those that were sitting on the stools, I was on the stool. Some were just kind of walking around in the lunchroom area. Yeah. But nonetheless, 34 of us were there, and we were we were sitting there. We didn't say anything. Um, I do, the waitresses were looking at, us, looking at us like, why are you here? And there were some black waitresses, and there were some white waitresses. Yeah. And the white the black waitresses looked at us really what what do you do you know you're gonna have make me lose my job it was like they said why are you doing this you know so they were so concerned about their job not what we were doing yeah and so uh anyhow i do remember um i i don't remember it as much as i really should because i may have blocked it out of my mind yeah but i remember some hot coffee Hot coffee being kind of pushed on the counter, and the part of it got on my leg, <gasps> but I said nothing. I didn't do anything. And uh, about that time, you know, the next big thing was happening. And uh, I looked outside the window, and I saw the police wagons pull up. I oh said, my oh, my goodness. I know what's happening next. So at any rate, I saw the police wagons pull up, then all of a sudden I saw the police jump out of the wagons, and they had, on their hand, they had the chains and and the bully clubs, but but on the chains were the German Shepherd dogs, and I said, oh, I thought of what I'd seen on television about how so many people had been with the hoses, with the beat with bully clubs, just to trying to, you know, get their rights heard. And so it wasn't long before, soon after I saw it, because I saw it from the window where I was sitting. And they came in, and they came in rapidly, and they um, they yelled, you students are going to be under arrest if you don't leave right now. I remember them saying it like that. And we looked at each other. No one spoke. No one said a word. Said, if you don't leave, we're going to give you one more chance. And if you don't leave, you're going to be under arrest. Now, there were some students up there on that sec- on the other floor in the, in the restaurant part. So I don't know what happened with them. All I know is what, was heard, what I heard downstairs. Was there any moment where you were thinking about, like, bolting or... You know, trying to... You running out or leaving? Yeah. No, no. That that, that was not an option then. <laughs> we, 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 I, we had come that far. 
And so we, I, you know, I said, we're going to go off and go all the way, whatever happens. If it means going to jail, then this is what it is. But I didn't, still didn't realize the impact I was having. I'm still caught up in the fact that I marched from the campus in the, into the store and I'm sitting at the counter and the police are there. See, I'm not looking at the future in terms of what, you know, what's going to happen. What does this mean? I was caught up in the moment. Yeah. And so then they said, all right. So they started coming toward the, I remember the German shepherd dog coming near my leg. And, you know, I was just praying that the dog would not bite me. Mm -hmm. And they were jerking the dogs back because they really wanted to, you know, go at it. So I remember uh, the police officer coming toward me. I know that I mean, he did it with several of the police officers were doing this, but he um, pulled me gently off of the the counter seat, and he said, uh, "You need to come with me." And though I didn't say the thing is when they say you're under arrest and the charge is trespassing, and I said trespassing. And I thought about it. I'd come into the store and get a donut or buy the cake. And and um, if my mother wanted to, to get a, a, a dress or a hat, yeah. if she bought it, if she bought it, she could not try it on. They yeah. would let you buy something, but you couldn't try it on. Black, black patrons had to just take it. If it didn't fit too bad, because you couldn't bring it back. So it was that, you know, that dual standard there. And I often wonder, well, how can they accept my dollar? But yet they're not letting, they're saying I'm trespassing. Yeah. Um, if I'm trespassing, they should not take my dollar at all. Exactly. For whatever's going on. So that's, what, that's the way I felt about it. You know, if, no, I'll let you have a question, Kayla. Okay, so I had a question that's not really applying to the situation at this moment. But, um... It was, like, at the start of the protest, were there any white students with you? No. I do remember seeing some white, um, I don't, I think because they were in school themselves during that time. So, but I saw white adults. There are like white adults and some young adults that might have been not in school. Mm -hmm. But, um, they were cheering and making, making all kinds of sounds and, and uh, waving the little Confederate flag behind us in the store. So they knew about, the, for them to have the Confederate flag with them, and mm -hmm. a little flag, you know, that was, uh, that, that let me know that they knew knew about it or found out about it and got there to cause problems. Yeah. But so that's, we, they, they took us, as I was saying, the, the, the policemen took us off the counters and counter chairs and, and they must have gone up to the upper room to get the students that were there. And they, no one was hit, no one, no one was called a name. And they ushered us, ushered us out of the store, and put us into the police wagons, and it slammed that door. And I, and I said, well, I am on the way to jail, and I just couldn't believe it. And I said, I have. I, I got involved in the sit-ins and did not mm -hmm. know I was going to get arrested in all of this when I started, when I got into that nice march. And so here we are, and we're, we're on our way to jail, and I'm just, I'm still thinking about my parents 
Have I let them down? What are they going to think? And it's not just me, but it's my brother Ford. That's Ford also. So anyhow, we go on and get into the jail. They open up the, the, the wagons, and they let us into the little side door. I don't remember the exact street where the jail was then in 1960. But I remember there was a side door they brought us in. And we went, went in and got fingerprinted and pictures taken and um, were thrown into the jail. I don't remember handcuffs, but we were thrown into jail. And we were there, and I was saying, oh, my goodness, how long am I going to have to spend the night in this place? And, and what's going to happen? And then where is my brother? I was Because I was the oldest. I was concerned about where he was. Yeah. And uh, who's going to come and, and bail us out? Are they going to come bail us out or what's going on? So we were there for a little over an hour. And then uh, the bailiff comes in, not the, the bailiff, someone, whoever it was, and said, you students are free to go. Those were the, those were the words. And I said, free to go? How are we free to go? They said, um, and they opened up the gates, the door, and they said, uh, you going to follow us. They said, your bail has been paid. And I was thinking to myself, how did our bail get paid? How did the bail for 34 students? Of course, I didn't know the number of students that were arrested. Yeah. But how did the bail get paid for all these students? And so um, we, li we listened to them and went on out the side door. The, one, the door we came in is the door we came out of. And this is when it hit me. All that time I, I was just dealing with going in the moment, in the moment. When I got to the door to go out to get to, to did not know where I was going to go, but the wagons weren't there. So when we got out the door, all I could see were blocks. The block in front of me, the block down further, the block across the side of the other side of the street. Every There were people on those blocks, on the sidewalk, and they were clapping, they were giving a high five, they had smiles on their faces. And I said, what are all these people doing here? And before I could get it all out of my mouth, it was like something hit my stomach, like my gut. And it was like, spirit said, don't you realize what has happened? Do you realize these people out here couldn't stand up for their rights, but you all did did it for them. And that's why they're so elated. Because somebody is finally recognizing the fact that they have been mistreated and somebody stood up for them. Yeah. And so it wasn't so much for myself. I realized, oh my goodness, I have done something for somebody else. I've made, I've made a stand. We've made a stand. We've made a difference. And so that, that was really, really, really what it hit me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, I didn't, I didn't think it then, but I was still concerned about my parents and how they were going to react. I think in the back of my mind, I thought, they can't be angry with me. If everybody here is smiling, they couldn't possibly be angry. So that, that's where it was at that point. Yeah. So uh, you can ask the next question. Um, so I forgot to 
ask you this, but how old were you at, like, during this program? I, I was 19. Oh. I was 19. And how old is your And so, uh, you know, that, that was something, and I was a, I was a junior getting ready to be a senior that next year. Mm. So, uh, you know. So I was I was ready ready to come out. Didn't know what was going to happen, but uh, and I, my brother was two years behind me. I was I'm the oldest. He's two years younger. But when we got out of the, when we got out of the door, um, there were cars waiting to take us, take us somewhere, and we all got in these cars, not not even questioning what is going on, where are they taking us. But it had to be something positive. Because everybody was smiling and everybody was for us. Yeah. And so we got into the cars and they drove us to uh, one of the few black, I think there were about two black hotels in Richmond at that time. One called the Eggleston Hotel, that where you could get a decent meal and you could stay overnight. Because you couldn't stay overnight at the Holiday Inn and some of the other uh, rest, uh, um, hotels couldn't eat anywhere, couldn't sleep anywhere, and so that was one of the nicer hotels that were accommodating, and then there was another one called Slaughter's Hotel. I remember I remember those two, my parents told me about them, that's where you could get a nice meal, and you know, that type of people from out yeah. of town could come, and so we got there, and um, people were all outside of the, of the Eggleston Hotel, and everything. So we went on in, inside, and uh, students were there, teachers were there, parents were there, strangers were there. And I was looking around the room, and I was looking for my parents. I said, oh, goodness, I know they've got to be here. They've heard about it. They know that we've been let out of jail, so they've got to be here to receive us. Yeah. And so... I looked around and I saw my mother. I said, oh, my mother's there. And she had a smile on her face. Mm. And so uh, I said, well, where's my father? So I kept looking around for him. And there there he was with his hands behind his back. And he wore, I remember he used to wear a vest. He would wear his suit with the vest. Yeah. And, and that vest was really like the button popped off that vest, the way he was standing, very distinguished. He was a very handsome man, my father, and well respected in the city, and uh, before I, well, let me just tell you something while I'm thinking about it, my father was so well respected that the people in the um, city wanted him to run for city council, oh. and he he said, well, no, I have a very, very uh, productive dental business, and I don't really want to, I can't handle both of them. Yeah. I can't be on city council and also, you know, run my dental practice. So he recommended someone for it, for the city council. And that person became became a member of the city council. So we'll talk about that later as who that was. You all can probably figure that one out, the adults that are on this call. Mm. But at um, any rate, uh, he was happy that not just one of his children got arrested that day. But two of his children got arrested, so he had a double. He, I could see pride all over his face because he's yeah. been working with the NAACP to get get changes. And so, uh, from that, um, I was a celebrity on campus, and mm -hmm. many of them were. And, and um, the president of the school um, 
all the celebration. The next day at school, everybody was, they were happy about the stand we took. And um, the fact that 34 of us got arrested. But I always say, but 200 of us, 200 of us, you know, were there. They kept going around the, going around the store during that time. And so that next day, well, the next, that night when I came home from school, um, my mother got a call from the president of the college, Dr. Proctor, and he said, uh, told my mother, he said, Elizabeth, I want you to get, they called me Betty, I want yeah. you to get Betty ready to get on a plane tomorrow morning because um, we, I had to choose a female from the South who was in the sit-ins, and I chose Betty to go to represent Virginia and represent Virginia Union. So she's going to be going to the Today Show. And yeah. uh, my mother knew. I, I had seen the Today Show back then, Dave Garraway and Florence Henderson. And they said, she's going to be on that show. And she's, I don't know what the show will entail, but it's going to have to be on what they did. What they did. She and another student, a student, a male student from the South, and one of the students from A&T, where the Greensboro Four were, they were on that show too. So I got on the plane and, you know, all the, I was felt like a celebrity flying out <laughs> to be on the TV show and uh, got there that day. They met me at the airport, all the, all the red carpet treatment. And uh, Dave Garraway was so courteous and so nice. And so was Florence Henderson. And they said, no, you're going to be, it's going to be an unusual show. And we want you to know that we're going to be looking out for you. You're going to have to debate five segregationists from the South. Five old white guys from Alabama who were going to be asking uh, asking us questions. And we really didn't get, get a chance to ask, really, but one, I think. And I remember they had that, they had the hate stare on. And here we are, two innocent black students trying to make a statement. Yeah. And he's segregationists from the South. And they asked the question. And it was a, well, why do y'all think you deserve to be a first-class citizen? We're the only first-class citizens in America. And I said, I don't know what I said that day, but whatever I said, why, why shouldn't I be or something to that effect? I'm mm-hmm. here, too. And I, you know, I paid my taxes. And I, you know, do the do our part, and we keep this co- this country going. And so I don't know everything I said, but whatever I said was right on time. And uh, that day I had a chance to, after the show was over, uh, they of course they never shook my hand, they never said anything. They they had the hate stare to the end. Yeah. And so yeah. after that I was invited to lunch, and I think uh, I was invited to lunch by. Uh, had lunch with Roy Wilkins, who was the director of the NAACP, the top guy, Whoa. and also the, Mars, the the person that many students study about, and that's uh, Thurgood Marshall. They were they had lunch with me. I didn't oh know God. how great or how well known they were at that time, but boy, that was quite a. As I look back and reflect on it, that was quite one of the most important days of my life. Was, was that day. Wow. Um, so, do you 
want to talk about like how your father got that with the man he recommended for city council? Uh, yeah, well, wait, while yeah, while we're talking about it, if you all know the the name uh, Chuck Richardson, he's been in the news quite a bit. He ran again for city council this year, but he didn't make it. But he was he did a lot for the city of Richmond. And uh, my father said, I can't do it, but I tell you, somebody who gets some things done in in uh, Virginia. To, and he's the one that got the Arthur Ashe statue on Monument Avenue, and he did a lot for just a lot for help helping people that were not uh, being taken care of in his district. So he's out there now. He's you know still he's still alive. He's just he's writing a book that's supposed to be coming out soon. But Ooh. you'll hear that name again. I'm sure. He's my brother-in-law. He married my sister. <gasps> so my father said, you know, he's the one that got him there. So uh, that's something. The story not told. But the story I do want to end with before before we leave is my brother, Ford. Ford um, was a member of the Richmond 34, and he went on to finish. He went on to finish uh, college and went to Ghana to be in the Peace Corps. And uh, oh, but before he went into the Peace Corps, it was in 1963, 62 that he was. He took my father's car, and the tags were had had already expired, and he um, drove the car. Although the new tags were in the back seat, he just didn't know. So the police pulled him over that day in uh, Richmond and said, uh, "You know, you you are driving improper tags. They have they've expired. You need to come. come you're going to be. I'm taking you to the court. And during those days, I guess they just took you straight to court. So a brother goes into the court room and he sees all these people and it's packed. So he sits he sits down where there's a seat." And uh, he sits toward the back, not bothering anybody, waiting to see what's going to happen. And then before he can really get adjusted, a loud voice comes over and it says, colored boy, sitting over on the other side, you're sitting on the white side of the court. You belong over here on the black side of the court. My brother was shocked. And he looked around and said, you talking to me? And he said, yeah, I'm talking to you. You need to come on over here and sit where you're supposed to sit. Really, really demeaning. I don't know who the judge was. But I'm sure it's in, it's in the, the case. But anyhow, he went, got up slowly. Because keep in mind, he'd already been arrested once. And yeah. he was a gentleman then. And so he continued to be a gentleman here in the court. So he went there in front of the judge and he stood up in front of the judge. Now, his arms were not behind his back. His arms were folded in front of him, in front of the judge. And the judge says, did you hear what I said? I told you to sit down. And that was so demeaning. And my brother thought to himself, I will not be talked like that. I will not be demeaned. I will continue to stand. And he stood up in front of the judge refusing to move, refusing to sit down anywhere. And the judge said, if you don't move, I'm going to throw you in contempt. Contempt of court. Throw you in jail. And so, he did 
didn't say anything. And he, they, they came and took him and threw him into jail. But as he was, as he was uh, going into the jail, one of the lawyers was coming back because the courthouse was very small, and jail was nearby, near the court, near the courtroom. And so coming by, um, this lawyer saw Ford, knew, Ford Jr. and knew him. He said, Ford Jr., what are you doing in jail? He said, uh, they found me in contempt. He said, contempt for what? He said, I wouldn't sit on the, I wouldn't sit down when the judge told me to. And he wouldn't allow me to sit in the white section. And he said, I've got to call Doc. That's what they called my father. So he got on the phone, told my father that uh, Doc Ford, Ford's in jail. And for, for not sitting on the black side of the court. And my father said, what? And so I don't know how he got, how he got out or yeah. he, was, he didn't stay in jail that whole day. Uh, the NAACP, my father was secretary for the NAACP then in Richmond. And he called the NAACP and told them about what had happened. And uh, some of the great lawyers that many of the adults would probably know, Oliver Hill and Clarence Newsom and Ronald Ely, a lot of those were courts, I mean, lawyers who had made their reputation on looking out for people that had been mistreated. And they came together and they realized, we have a case for the courts. This is not, this is not right. The courts of the United States should not be segregated. And so they took the court, took the case all the way to the, the Supreme Court to fight to see whether they had a case. And after that, my brother went on to Ghana to be in the Peace Corps. And while he was in Ghana in the Peace Corps teaching his class, uh, that particular day, the Associated Press came up through the bush saying, we're looking for Mr. Johnson, Ford Johnson Jr. And he said, I'm Ford Johnson Jr. He said, well, I, we want you to know that you won your case. And he thought they were talking about the case of the sit-ins. Yeah. Because we never we never heard any more about it. And so, because we knew that our case was dismissed, but that's all we knew. And so they said, no, not that case. Johnson versus the state of Virginia, the court. <gasps> you won your case in the court. And so he was elated. He said, oh, my goodness. And so uh, people in Ghana were so excited for him and, they had a big little celebration that night, and I was telling, I think I told the other group, they roasted a pig in his honor, and it was a big, it was a big thing that uh, their teacher had, had won a court case in the United States. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so that, that was um, one of the things. So he goes, he leaves the Peace Corps, and he goes, he said, he was going to be a dentist following my father's footsteps. But he decided after the sit-ins and then after the deal in the courts, he said, I got to go into law. I'm sorry. That made him become a lawyer. So he went to Harvard Law School. He was accepted at Harvard Law School. And that particular, one of the days when he was in class with his fellow students, and, and you, of course, you know, probably on that class, there were maybe maybe two black kids in the class. And the teacher decides to do the court case 
Johnson versus the state of Virginia. And so he, he's telling the, the students all about the case. And Ford keeps interrupting him. And, say, and, he, and, and he's, I said, uh, well, that may be right or wrong, but let me go on. And he kept on talking. And Ford interrupted him again. And he said, young man, why are you interrupting me so much? What do you, I, what do you know about this case? Very indignant, and my brothers, my brothers uh, stood up and said, "Because my name is Ford T. Johnson Jr., I'm the plaintiff in that case." And all of his fellow classmen just clapped their hands for him, and it was like, "Oh, you got one over on the teacher." And so um, that he said that day he always remembers, you know, he remembers that day very well. Yeah, and he went on. He became a lawyer, and he did some. Pra- he did a practice law, but he um, just decided he'd done. He didn't. He did corporation law is what he decided on doing. But that was that's his story. That's his story. Hopefully, it'll be a the whole story. I'm trying to get this book of mine written, so you pray that I get it done one of these days, real soon. Yep. Because um, as, as I was, telling, I think I Kaylee heard me tell the other. Um, Swift Creek Middle School, that this will be the big eight-all coming up in October. So hopefully I have it, have the draft finalized after writing it for 10 years. I got a lot of good stories in there, some comical, some sad, but quite a read. So hopefully I can get it published. I can't wait so that's, for that. that's the, that's the story. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll make sure I can, I get, I, I get. Um, make sure, make sure you tell me when that book's get, book gets published. How about that? I gotta do it. Everybody keeps asking for it, so I really gotta do it. Yeah. So we have a few minutes left. Um, uh, I just have a quick question about BPOS. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, BPOS is my foundation. It's a non-profit. B part stands for Be Part of the Solution. Um, and I started that in uh, 2010, somewhere around that time. Didn't get uh, get my nonprofit status until uh, not too long, about 2016. And so I, my, my whole thing is to improve society. And my grandmother, I kind of am following the legacy started on started by my grandmother and my grandfather. It was. Um, Tomorrow's World Foundation, and she had as the cornerstone of uh, the five the five uh, rays star, and each star, each ray of the star represented how we need to continually balance our lives. And she did the you know the physical, the mental, the social, the educational, and the financial. If you don't have those things in balance, and the center of the star was spirit emanating into all of these areas and when you have all of that taken care of that is when your life is balanced and good things happen to you when you're out of balance things don't happen to you as as quickly as they could happen so that's one of the premises of my be part of the solution we can all be part of the solution in any of those areas whether it's our own personal area or for others Others and I always wanted to have um, that kind of thing taught in the schools. I wish that was. I wish that kind of a program was in the schools about personal development and 
strengthening your mind and learning success principles. I'm a follower of Napoleon Hill, and I fully, be- I, you know, fully believe in one of those great books, Think and Grow Rich, and The Art of Thinking Big, and How to Win Friends and Influence People. All those yeah. kinds of things should be taught in the schools. I to, agree. And, and not just the schools, but the parents and the students together. Because you can't just teach the kids and not involve the parents. Because some of these kids will go back into the homes they came from and be dealing with the same stuff. So it's got to be a dual thing. So that's what, be part of the solution is, is the art of empowering people to be the best they can, students and parents. And my, my goal now is to, I'm teaching uh, financial literacy how to get out of debt, trying to free families, looking to free one family at a time to get them to be the as financially free and in all these other areas. So that's my new thrust. I'm still doing civil rights when, it, when I have to, but the big goal now is freedom for these families. And really right now, it's more prominent than ever with what's going on with the virus. People are losing their jobs there. They don't have the means and income to take care of their families. And so, you know, hopefully something will be done and I can get going. I've told Kaylee I want to maybe do my own podcast for Be Part of the Solution. So maybe Kaylee can help me get my podcast going. (laughs) So uh, that's what's going on. And so, uh, you know, I I appreciate the opportunity that uh, Kaylee just to be here with you today and to share some golden nuggets, I hope, to some people that are out there. And uh, I wish you all the success in the world on your podcast and that this is just the beginning of some greatness that you have. Because for you to have started this at, at when you say you're 13? Yeah. <laughs> to have started this at 13, that is awesome. That's awesome. So, And to have your first guest, somebody who's almost 80, that's really that takes courage. <laughs> so you must you must really believe in me. So I'm I'm gonna put that belief in you. For you to do the best you can, any way I can help you, you let me know. Thank you, Miss Rice, for allow for allowing me to interview you and being my first guest on this new podcast. And be sure to stay tuned every week. Talk a little louder here, let Oh, be sure to stay tuned every week for more episodes for my podcast. Bye, Miss Rice. Okay, Kaylee, thanks so much. Thank you, bye. All right, bye-bye. Have a wonderful day. You too.